farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So today, I, I uh, forgot to mention a number of things, but we must celebrate for this is the Feast of Pies. If you do not know, this is my first Feast of Pies. I just like to say that word, Feast of Pies. Uh, people, I know many people, I saw a number of them coming in after the service today. We're going to be gathering over on this side of the building, and there's going to be pies galore is what I'm promised. Uh, there should be pumpkin, apple, hopefully some pecan, or is it pecan? How do you say it? Pecan. All that good stuff. No, it's going to be a good time. Uh, so hopefully you can stick around after. If you didn't bring a pie, it's okay. Uh, hopefully someone else did, and uh, you guys are welcome. Also, if, if you can, if you remember when we're heading out, I know they need to set up some tables. So those of you that have done that and know where the tables are and chairs, you can kind of run out and uh, kind of help them with that. So it's good to see you guys uh, here this morning. Hey, a couple things. Again, next week we're going to begin a new series, and the series is entitled God With Us. We're going to be walking into John chapter 15. Now, the story of Christmas is the story that God is with us. Jesus came and his name was Emmanuel, God with us. So what does it mean to be with God? When we jump into John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so whoever abides in me can do much, but apart from me you can do nothing. And so what we're going to do over five weeks during the Advent season is really look into what does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to jump into John 15. And I'm excited because John, Jonah, Jonah Haddad, our missionary, is going to launch this series off. And uh, what I understand, Jonah's written a number of books, so he's a smart guy. And I understand he's a great apologist and good speaker. And so next week, we're going to start this new series, God with us, walking through uh, John chapter 15, because today which is either a good thing or a bad thing, we're going to end the book of James. 
Now, hopefully this has been a blessing to you. I've been been encouraged as I've walked through the book of James because James is incredibly honest. But he's honest in a grace-filled, love-filled, build-you-up kind of way, not a tear-you-down kind of way. You know, you have that person in your life. Loves to remind you of all the things you do wrong, but not in a build-you-up, but a tear-you-down kind of way. Well, what James does is he gives you a mirror. And he says the Word of God is a mirror. Meaning when we look at the Word of God, it shows us who we are. And we're supposed to walk away and begin to address the things that God is addressing. And so what we've done over the last few weeks is we've looked at some common areas in life. And this is what I love about James. He says that change and spiritual transformation doesn't happen when you get up to Bergen Peak. It's not on the mountaintop. Rather, where change happens is in the ordinary events of life. Change happens when you're going through trials. Change happens when we're tempted and we're looking for a way out. You know, change happens when we're not just readers of the word, but when we're doers of the word also. Change happens when my words start saying things that create pain and hardship in others, and instead of just allowing my words to kind of fly out into the world, I'm evaluating the words that I I say. Change happens when we evaluate our words. Change happens when we recognize that sometimes we value the material world so much that it overshadows and overwhelms the spiritual world. And instead of making decisions out of what is the best will for God and us, we make decisions simply out of what I want or what I desire. And so what James is showing us as you've gone through this book is that change really happens in the simple, practical moments of life. It's when nobody's watching. It's when the eyes are off of you and you're alone, or maybe it's in just in the ordinary events of life, that that's where God wants to come in and truly begin to change us as we apply his word and the gospel to our lives. You with us? And so what we're going to do today is look at the last area where we need wisdom for life. And the title is Wisdom for Intimacy with God. Now, I have to warn you, I didn't like preparing this message. Now, not because I don't like intimacy with God, but what James is going to say produces intimacy with God is something that we may pray for, but I don't think we really want. You ready? What produces intimacy with God is patience. I mean, how many of you are just excited about being patient? You know, looking for opportunities to develop patience. I mean, having kids develops patience, right? You know, standing in line develops, there's a lot of things that develop patience, but on a spiritual level, when it comes to intimacy with God, what James is going to say is one of the key things that brings your heart and God's heart together is patience. And so when we jump into verse 7 through 20, what we're looking at is a section of scripture where James is talking about what intimacy with God looks like and then how we begin to cultivate that in our lives. So before we jump into the word, let me just pray because I need help. And let me ask God to guide us. Uh, Father, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you tell us in, in the book of Peter that those who speak should speak as speaking the words of God. And those that serve should only do so with the strength that God provides. So, Father, that in all things you may be praised. Lord, as we gather just in this short time to study your word, would you be praised and honored, both with what we hear, what I say, but how we, how we leave and go out to this community, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I love you. I praise you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Let me get my voice here. 
<clears throat> so you'll notice in verse 7 and following, notice how many times he mentions the word patience. First of all, in verse 7, he says, be patient. Then look at this. Watch this in verse 8. He says, you also be patient. Verse 10, he says, an example of suffering and patience. Brother takes, brothers, take the prophets. And then verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. So patience, be patient, steadfastness. This is the theme that James is going to build upon. And what he's talking about in this section as we begin to look at it is he's talking about patience, not just in the ordinary moments of life. Rather, the place that intimacy with God gets cultivated, you ready? Is patience when applied to the suffering that we go through in life. It's not just patience with your kids, and though that may be suffering at times, or just when you're in line. It's patience that we cultivate when life doesn't make sense. And specifically, I think when life doesn't make sense, that means God isn't making sense. Or even sometimes when we're obedient to God, God will ask us to do things that voluntarily take us into suffering and into struggle and to hardship. And he's saying it's in those moments where we're going through trials and difficulties as we're patient with God that our heart, our intimacy with God begins to grow. And so James is going to describe what, what it looks like to have patience, not just in life in general, but what does it look like to have patience when everything in me is screaming, God, you must not care? What is it like to have patience when everything in me says, God, this is what I want. I want comfort. I want pleasure. I want it now. And yet you've told me no. And yet what I want and what you want for me are in con conflict with each other. And yet I think this is the solution to dressing the pain that I'm struggling with right now in my life. See, it's in those moments that intimacy with God gets developed. And what he's going to do in this passage is give us three examples. Three examples of what it looks like to be patient, but three examples that hopefully will tie into your own life. And because they'll tie into your own life, show us how we can develop that intimacy, that passion, that heart for God when we're going through challenges and trials in life. And so here's the first one. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Middle of verse 7, he says... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So you also be patient. I love this. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's a lot of things in life we cannot control. But I think one of the hardest professions has to be a farmer. Someone that is dependent not upon just themselves for the outcome. Because on the one hand, when you fail and the failing is all based on what you've done or the success is based on what you've done, you can carry that. You can, you can deal with that. You can think it through. But when your success is based on something that you cannot control like the weather, that's patience. Because it's something that... On the one hand, you can do all the work, all the effort that you want. You can get up as early as you want, work as hard as you want. And yet, what is going to make you successful is completely outside of your control. And see, James is taking that image and he's applying it to our suffering. And he's saying when you're going through trials and hardships, there's a lot of things you cannot control. Now, you may want to control. 
You may want to take control and actually step outside of God's will and not be patient. But he's saying in suffering, like a farmer, we have to trust. We have to trust that even in the worst of times, God is still in control. God is still good. And God is still watching over us. That God is still in control. God is still good. And he's still watching over us. Now, what does that look like? Well, you know, when you go through suffering, there's many things we cannot control. But what he does is he says there are some, some, some things that you can control. Now, we may not want to admit it, but we can control our attitude. I mean, I know when I'm sick, I feel like I can't control <clears throat> my attitude. But there are things that we can control. And he's going to say in verse 9, you can control how you respond. That when you complain and when you grumble, that is a choice. And just as you can choose to praise God in hard times, it's very easy for us to slip in this negative mode of just grumbling and complaining when things aren't going right, when things aren't going my way. And he's saying, look at this in verse 9. He's going to say, hey, watch out. This is spiritual death. Now, it's going to be surprising because he's going to say what is spiritual death is grumbling. And that doesn't seem to be something that's that terrible. But let's jump into verse 9 and discover why. Look at this. In verse 9 he says, Do not grumble against each other, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now let's be honest that all of us grumble. But there are some of us who have made an art of grumbling. You know who you are. And some of you may have gotten up early on Friday morning and you experienced holiday grumbling. You know, and that's kind of, it's insignificant in some ways, but all of us grumble, all of us find things that bother us. And yet what James is saying is this is something we can control. We can control our attitude. And notice the thing that we're grumbling against isn't just life in general. He says, don't grumble against each other. And then he adds this statement, which seems pretty, pretty strong, considering that I don't see grumbling to be a real big deal. He says, the judge is at the door. The day of the Lord is near. God, I was just grumbling. I mean, I understand that you're at the door when I'm doing some really bad stuff, you know, when I'm really into some things that could really harm me or harm others, but... Why is James saying that the judge is at the door specifically when we're grumbling at each other? You see, what grumbling does, first of all, what grumbling does is it hides us from the grace of God. It blocks the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God in our life, and that's the very thing we need when we're going through suffering. When you complain and grumble... You know, when you get that nitpicking attitude, and not just in general, notice he's saying, when you start grumbling against the people around you. How did Thanksgiving go? Any grumbling? You had that, yeah, somebody did. You had that uncle, you had that relative come over, and you have that just, that attitude begins to come up, and it's real easy to, to notice all the things that person does wrong. It reminds you of every wrong turn they've done, every wrong word they've said, and that spirit and that attitude of anger and hatred starts to rage, and you wonder why at the end of the day you're so stressed out. That's what James is addressing. When we grumble and complain against each other, what happens is it blocks the grace of God in our lives. And the judge is at the door, meaning if the judge is at the door, 
The one person who should be impatient is the judge. Because the reality, I know this is true in my life, nobody has treated me the way that I have treated God. There's nobody in my life that has treated me to the extent, that has harmed me to the extent that I have harmed and treated God. And yet God has been patient. And I'll tell you, here's the evidence. I'm standing up here today. Because what Scripture says is that sin deserves punishment. It deserves condemnation. He's the judge. He has every right to condemn me. He has every right to take my life. He has every right to punish me. And yet God, in His mercy and grace, His kindness leads me to repentance. And the patience of God is like an ocean compared to the patience I need to express to my brother who's sitting next to me. You with me? The patience that God has poured out in my life is a massive ocean. It's the size of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how big an ocean that is, but it's big. That the patience God has poured out, the mercy and compassion He's poured out in my life is the size of the death and the resurrection and the life of Jesus Himself. How much patience do I need to show to my brother who's causing me pain in my life? You see the comparison? He's saying the judge is at the door. The one you should worry about is the one that's been patient with you. And so when we grumble, what happens is we take our eyes off of God, we start setting our eyes on others, and we start comparing ourselves. And we think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I haven't done what she did. I mean, she's a real terrible person. You want to talk about terrible people. Let me tell you this story. And we start describing other people by describing their faults and failures. And what is that? It's grumbling. And in effect, what you're doing is if you're going through suffering, you're keeping yourself in the very thing you need, which is the grace, the mercy, and the compassion of God. What grumbling does is it blocks us from God's grace. And it ensures that whatever's happening in your life, you ready for this? You will not change as a result. That whatever is going on right now in your life that you're grumbling against, You know, realize that God says, and and James says in chapter 1, the reason those things have come into our lives is so that we might be perfect and complete. If you jump back in chapter 1, he said, consider it joy. Now, consider joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that's not our natural bent, right? Hey, another trial's come. This is going to be great. So why does he say consider it joy whenever you face trials of many kinds? Because you know that in those moments, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance has a purpose. It must finish its work so that you might be mature. And I love this word, complete, lacking in nothing. That what God does in the ordinary events of life through our suffering and our struggle is He wants to make us mature and complete. Well, see, grumbling is going to keep us from maturity and it's going to keep us from being complete to the challenges that we face. That it could be that though somebody has caused suffering in your life, it could be that even though the events look bad, God is working behind those events, and He wants to use even the pain and the struggle you're going through right now to bring maturity, to cause you to become complete, not lacking anything. And see, that's the testimony of the Word of God. That's the testimony of the Christian life that even... When everything looks like it's falling apart, when things seem to be failing, that's when God is at work the most. 
I mean, just think about the cross. Imagine being a disciple looking at the cross. They must have thought, hey, nothing good could come out of this. There is no greater suffering. There's no greater injustice than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet God brought out of that tragedy, that suffering, that evil, the greatest good of all. And what James is saying is in the midst of our suffering, we've got to trust God. Like a farmer, we've got to trust him. And there are things we can control. You can control your attitude. It's a choice. Now, listen, some of you have made that choice so often, it's now a habit. And habits are hard to kill unless you have community. Do you know why they call them 12-step groups? Because sin is an addiction. Sin is an addiction. It's not something that you can overcome by yourself because you don't realize the extent to which you complain. Unless there's somebody that loves you enough. Do you have that person? That can say, this is going to cause trouble in your life. That can speak into your life. You can control the way you respond. Now, in verse 12, he's also going to say you can control your words. So look at verse 12. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Two things we can control in the midst of our trials. We can't control the trial itself. We can't control the outcome. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, but I can control my attitude and I can evaluate the words that I say. See, James is saying, like a farmer that endures patiently for the autumn and the spring rains, likewise, in our suffering, we got to patiently trust God. Now, the second example he gives us are the prophets. And I've got to tell you, there is no worse job opportunity than a prophet. I mean, if God comes to you and says, I want you to be a prophet, you know, that, that might be, okay, no. <laughs> because the prophets had a terrible life. It's a hard life. So notice what he says down in, in verse uh, 10. He says, and as an example of patience and suffering, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, behold, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. So, you would think if God called you to be a prophet, gave you this message, sent you out into Evergreen, he's going to protect you and make you comfortable. I'd assume that, right? How about Isaiah? You read Isaiah? Big book. Isaiah, I want you to take this message out. And here's the message I'm going to give you. And when you take that message out into Evergreen, it's going to harden people's hearts and they're going to get angry with you. But go with joy. <laughs> Have a great career. That's the message in Isaiah 6. He says the message is going to harden people's hearts. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, here's the message I want you to take. Go out to the people of Evergreen. You know, go out there and tell them a foreign nation is going to come in and wipe you people out. There's nothing you can do to change it. But when that invaders, those invaders come in and they wipe you out, I want you to bless them and serve them in a land that is not your own. What a great message, right? I mean, what a great life. That's why it was, people hated Jeremiah. They hated Isaiah. Hosea. Hosea had to marry a woman named Gomer. <laughs> I mean, that's a struggle right there. And yet the reason God said, I want you to marry Gomer, and she is going to be unfaithful. I want you to know, before you even get engaged, she's going to be unfaithful. She's going to uh, commit adultery. She's going to run on you. But Hosea, I want you to chase after her. 
I want you to pursue her. I do not want you to give up because I want you to experience the same heartbreak that I have with my people so that you can write it down so that my people might know that when you fall into sin, it's not just a mistake, it's adultery. And it doesn't just break the law of God. Listen, it breaks the heart of God. I mean, the life of the prophets was incredibly challenging. What did they have to hold on to? Because I'll tell you, I would have... See, this is how we keep your attention. I'll just use this, Ethan. This is not a problem. What did they have to hold on to? What James says, what they had to hold on to were the promises of God. Same thing that we have to hold on to. They had to hold on to the word of God and the promises of God. And so he says, consider the prophets. And last, consider Job. Consider how Job endured. You know, it took 42 chapters 42 grueling chapters for Job to realize what James says in this passage, that God is full of compassion and mercy. 42 grueling chapters of suffering. Really, the point of Job is that God is compassionate and merciful. Now, it took an entire lifetime of suffering for Job to realize it, but he was patient and he endured. And so likewise, what James is saying to us is like a farmer, like the prophets, like Job, we also should be patient and endure, not grumble, not allow our hearts to run to things that are going to simply take us out of the pain, but rather continue to trust God, continue to look to God. Hey, real quickly, Romans chapter 5. So how do we do this? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, listen to this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and what he's saying by justified by faith, means, it means that our acceptance with God is based on what Jesus has done and Jesus has done alone. So that God doesn't accept us because we're obedient or because we're good. We're accepted because Jesus was obedient and Jesus was good. And his obedience is now my obedience. And see, that makes me want to obey God. We're justified. We're accepted by God by faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, listen to the things that we have. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then second, through him, verse 2, we also have obtained access. I have now have access to the Father, not just the present. I have access to the one who created all things, maintains all things, sustains all things, created me, knows me, knows my inner thoughts and my being. I have access to God by faith. And then he says, into grace, that what we stand in is not law. God doesn't accept us because of what we do. We, we're accepted because of grace. And so we stand in this grace, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have peace, we've got grace, we've got access, we've got hope. Now, if we have all those things, what is a life that has those things? What does it look like? Well, notice what he describes next. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering. If I have peace with God, if I have the hope of God... If I have grace, if I have access with God, then in my suffering I rejoice, and here's why. Because I know that my suffering produces endurance, and endurance is another word for patience. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God has poured out his hearts, poured out into our hearts his love through the Holy Spirit. 
See, it's in the midst of our trials that God wants to change us. It's in the midst of trials that his hope becomes hope. His love actually becomes the love that we need. His grace becomes grace. And he becomes more intimate and near to us. As we walk through suffering, God becomes more real, not less. Now, here's the challenge. How do you connect to him? As you're going through suffering, how do you connect to God? Well, that's what James begins to build on in that next section in verse 13. Because what he's going to say is in all things, in every avenue of life, in every experience, whether it's suffering or it's in joy, or it's in want or in sorrow, no matter what's going on, we need to pray. You see it down there in verse 13? He says, are any of you sick? Pray. Are any of you happy? Pray. Sing songs of praise. Verse 14, is any one of you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So whether things are good or bad, when I'm happy, I'm sad, when I'm sick, when I've fallen into sin and temptation, the focus is intimacy with God. You see, prayer is not simply about getting what you want. Rather, prayer is recognizing that God is what I need. We lose the focus on prayer when we think prayer is about getting what I want. You know, if I can manipulate God just right, say the right things, kind of bargain with God, then things are going to turn out well. But the purpose of prayer is the same thing in your relationship with your wife, your husband, with another person. The purpose of conversation is to get to know each other, to build relationship and intimacy. And what James is saying is that intimacy comes when no matter what we're walking through, our, the place that we're turning to is to speak in intimacy with God. We need prayer. Now, there's a number of things that he describes in this passage, I'll tell you, that are incredibly challenging. And I don't have enough time to get into all of them, but just two things real quick I want to look at that James describes. And I just lost the first one. The first one is healing. Because James says that those that pray in faith, there's this prayer of faith that will make the sick person well. And so the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to pray in faith? There's a couple things that he says here. One, a prayer of faith is in faith. But also he's going to talk about anointing with oil. And that when you anoint somebody with oil and you pray in faith, it will make the sick person well. Or in this translation it says, and God will save him. And that's kind of a, one of those passages that over the years have been interpreted a number of different ways. And there's one way it's been interpreted in particular that I think is, is dangerous for us. It's dangerous spiritually for us. And you may have heard this. Some people will say the prayer of faith means having enough confidence, not having any doubts, being absolutely certain that what you pray for you're going to get. And if you pray in that way, if you pray confidently, confidently, uh, completely understanding that this is what God is going to do, God will do it for you. So if you pray in faith, you'll get what you ask for. Which means if you do not get what you ask for, you did not have enough faith. And so what is the prayer of faith? Is that what he's saying? Because it does seem to suggest the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So is James saying that if you pray in faith, God has to, he will answer that prayer? Well, I think the answer is no. And the answer is no, first of all, because faith is not about you. I know that's surprising, but faith is not about you. Because if I asked you right now to generate some faith, how would you do it? 
Go ahead. Let me see it. Just your best attempt. Generate some faith. Let's get some faith going. You can't. There you go. Faith is in the object. Praise the Lord. It's not in you. It's in what you have your faith in. Faith is in what you're trusting in. And so the faith that makes a sick person well, first of all, is one who is trusting in who the Lord is. One of the greatest illustrations I've heard on this is you think of those that pass through the Red Sea. I mean, that would have been a tremendous moment, right? <laughs> Walking through the Red Sea, you know, seeing fish, seeing these walls of water on each side. You know, some people, I bet, walk through confidently. You know, they're high-fiving, they're having a great time, they're confident, they're excited. I bet you others were walking through absolutely terrified. But see, faith allowed them to walk through, not their confidence and not their fear. Because the guys that were afraid got through to the other side, and those that had confidence got through the other side. It was the object of their faith. It was God that enabled them to walk through. The prayer offered in faith, first of all, is faith is in the object. It's not in me. And so the one that will accomplish this is not me, rather it's God. And so he says the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. And then he also talks about anointing them with oil. But he also says in the name of the Lord. Because some people have said, you know, what is, what is the significance of oil? Why was oil used? And some people would suggest that oil was simply medicinal. If you read the story of the Good Samaritan, when he was found on the side of the road, he went and he anointed that man's wounds with oil. Because in a very arid climate, oil was used as medicinal salve. Uh, and so it could be medicinal. The other thing that oil is, is it's a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Then in the Old Testament, when it says anoint in the name of the Lord, the oil was symbolic of the Spirit. And when oil was placed on someone, it was placed for a specific time and a specific reason and a specific purpose. And what James is saying in this passage, I think, could be twofold. One, it may be medicinal that we put oil on someone. But listen, if you're that sick and you're waiting for the elders to bring you medicine, yeah, you're waiting for the wrong person. And so I don't think that James is just saying, hey, wait for the elders to come and, and bring medicine. Rather, I think what he's saying is, one, we trust the physical things that God's given us. If God's given us doctors, he's given us medication, those are good things. But don't just go to the material, trust the spiritual as well. I think sometimes when we deal with common things that we know how to solve, we cut God out of the equation. Hey, I've got allergies. I'm just going to go to the pill. Well, have you ever considered praying before you take the pill? I mean, before you just run out and buy something, hey, we need a refrigerator. That's pretty obvious. It's something material. Here's one on sale. Before you go out and do the material, why don't you just focus on the spiritual and say, Father, if there's something you want us to have, would you provide it? And I think likewise, when it comes to healing, there are physical aspects that bring healing, but there's also a spiritual reality that not all of our physical struggles are physically caused. There are spiritual causes to physical ailments. Because when sin came into the world, with sin came death. And that doesn't mean that every time you're sick, every time something happens that God's against you and he's punishing you. No. But what James is saying is in all things, when things are good or things are bad, when things are going well or when we're sick, we need to turn our hearts and to trust him. We need to look to him and turn to him. And so finally, then in verses 19 and 20, what James says is we not only pray in patience with God as we go through suffering, but also we are patient with others whose sin and behavior causes us suffering. And so he describes in verse 19, my brothers, 
If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Sometimes the suffering that's in our life is the suffering of the sin of others. You with me? I think often the suffering that's in our life is the sin of others. How do we respond when the people we love the most cause the greatest pain in our lives? What James says is we need to chase after them. We don't give up. Because he says when you see a brother who wanders from the truth, bring him back. Because whoever brings a sinner from the air of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know, when we see physically, we don't see well. Because when we see physically, I see the sin of others and I see its impact on my life. And that's hard to deal with. But see, that's something i got to bring before the Lord. But when someone sins against me, I need to not just see the effect on my life. I need to recognize the spiritual death that's actually taking place in their life. That when someone is in habitual sin, what James is saying is that person could be heading towards death. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. But he's saying if they, if they don't turn back. If there isn't someone that loves them enough to speak into their life, then that's someone that could be leading their life towards destruction. And part of patience is the body of Christ is being patient with each other, of having the kind of relationship that doesn't expect comfort. That when I serve, not everyone's going to appreciate my service, and I may feel taken advantage of because I'm acting like a servant. That in the body of Christ, we may have to live as Jesus lived. But see, what sustains us? What sustains us is intimacy with God. And see, here's the test as we close. You know, church, how do we know we're really cultivating intimacy with God? Well, the focus is on when you pray. Remember back, he said, when you're happy, pray. When you're sad, pray. When you're sick, call people to pray for you. When you sin, confess your sins to each other. You know, one of the signs that we lack intimacy with God is we only pray when we're in trouble. One of the clear signs that we lack intimacy with God is we only pray when we're in trouble. Now, God welcomes the prayer of someone who's crying out in trouble. But see, when you love someone and you want to be with them, you want to be with them when you're happy and when you're sad, when you're sick and when you sin. What James is saying is the sign of intimacy is we want to be with God. And see, how do we cultivate that? We've got to recognize what Jesus has done to be with us. That being with me, as much as I think it may be a joy, it was not a joy for Jesus. Rather, to be with me, Jesus had to humble himself, take on human flesh, take my sin upon the cross, die for me so that I might have life. And see, to the degree I realize the patience of God in my life, to the degree I see God being patient with me, I'll be patient with others, and then my heart will cultivate a love for God. Because the reality is, church, we didn't get what we deserve. And I don't want to diminish, listen, I don't want to diminish the suffering that any of you have endured or that you're experiencing. But realize what Scripture is saying is the suffering we've endured, the hardships we have gone through are nothing in comparison to what we deserve because of our sin. And yet Jesus, who knew no sin, listen, he knew no need for suffering. He, he didn't need to be taught patience, and yet he became 
one who needed to learn patience. Why? So that I might know the love of God. You know, the one thing suffering cannot mean in your life because of the cross is that God does not love you. The one thing suffering cannot mean is that God does not love you. Because if God was willing to sacrifice his son for you on the cross and not give us what we deserve, then the suffering in our life, we can trust him, that he's going to use it for our good, and he's going to cultivate intimacy with him, hope, peace, and joy in our life. Are you with me? And again, I don't want to diminish what you're going through, but rather I want to pray for you uh, and just ask God to minister to us. So worship team, would you come up? Father, I want to pray and ask, Lord, I know that um, as we gather on a day like this, and as we have walked through challenges in life, uh, I know there's many moments where, Lord, your word and our expectations don't match up. Or, Father, there's ways that we want to be loved, and we do not experiencing, experience you loving us in those ways. And, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, in our suffering, in our pain, in our struggle, would we learn to trust you? Just like the farmer waits for the rain and like the prophets wait and like Job waited, Lord, in our, our waiting, would you show us that you are compassionate and merciful? And Father, would you give us grace to show that mercy to others? This is a community in Evergreen that needs to know the gospel, needs to know Jesus Christ, but they will not know the gospel unless we are patient and loving and forgiving with each other. Because it's the unity of the body of Christ that shows the power of the love of Christ. So, Father, work in us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand as we worship.